Welcome to Book Reporter Talks To, a podcast from the Book Report Network, where we host in-depth conversations with authors about the books that we love. We know authors cannot travel everywhere, so we want to bring them to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to our latest Book Reporter Talks To interview, where our guest today is Nita Prose, and we're going to be talking about her latest book, The Mystery Guest, which is a Book Reporter Bets on Selection. The pleasure of meeting with um, Nita in person a couple of weeks ago. Imagine that, folks. And we sat down, we had a lovely conversation. And I was so enthused about what she's sharing about this book, about her writing, how she came to this. I'm so looking forward to this interview. In our book reporter review, Kate Ayers had this to say The mystery guest is a fun mystery. If you like character driven stories, this one's for you. Molly Gray is one of the most unique characters I've come across in a long time and is oddly lovable. Now, what's really interesting about this review is Kate had not read The Maid first. She did not read this book. So it is just showing that any of you who are coming to this book out of order, it's okay because Kate wasn't lost at all reading it and said, in fact, I want to go back and read The Maid, which I thought was completely interesting. So I really loved her thoughts on The Mystery Guest because it was from a different point of view, as opposed to all of us have already read the first book. And with that intro, welcome, Nita. It's so good to see you again. It's so good to see you again, Carol. Go chatting away again. Chatting away. <laughs> well, we're pretty good at that, I'd say. <laughs> I think we got that one nailed. <laughs> so Molly Gray, the maid who we first met in The Maid, um, she's back. So tell us about this book and why you decided to bring her back to life like this. Because there's so many wonderful things that work about this book backstory and whatever. So talk to us about that, first of all. Well, you know, after The Maid was successful, a few months into publication, uh, you know, my publishers were very eager to have me do more. <laughs> and at first I was reluctant to do that because I was really afraid of of what, what would happen to that character of Molly. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt when I was done the book, it belonged, she belonged to my readers. She wasn't mine anymore. And I was worried about giving them less instead of more. And we've all, you know, had that circumstance, Carol, where we pick up a second in a series and we're like, ooh, no, this is, this doesn't do it justice. And I was worried about that. So, you know, I gave it a try. Or I said, I will only do that if I can figure it out, if I can figure out a new tapestry that interests me as a creator. And if I feel in the end that I can provide Molly from a different light at a different moment in her life, where I offer more rather than less. So that's what I did. And I told my publishers and everyone else, I'm going to try. If it doesn't work, you're never going to see this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going in the drawer. Book two in goes the in the drawer. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was so much fun because we're going to get into how much we did get to learn about her because she's more fully fleshed out at this point. Well, let's start with what it was like to have J.D. Grimthorpe, the author, as a character. Because as someone who's worked in publishing for years, to have this author character there as well, it had to be fun to be writing. You know, I wanted to amuse myself with that that sort <laughs> of uh, that sort of new storyline. So in the novel, we return to the Regency Grand Hotel, this boutique hotel, five star, where Molly works in the first book as a maid. Um, but what happens is she's now promoted. She's head maid. And J.D. Grimthorpe, the reclusive, world-renowned writer, comes, he's about to give a big speech, he's about to reveal something very important, this private reclusive man, and unfortunately he drops dead, very dead, on the tea room floor. And Molly finds herself again embroiled in the mystery in the present tense. 
But also the book um, takes us back to the past mm -hmm. because I wanted to write a, a novel in, in sort of two tenses. Mm -hmm. um, and in the past tense, Molly is 10 years old and she works alongside her grand in a weird, luxurious, kind of creepy mansion. Uh, and in this place, she discovers as a young girl, she has to rediscover as a, as a woman now remembering these, these, um, memories, how much she knew about JD Grimthorpe from this mansion. And in order to solve the mystery in the present tense, she really has to mine those memories in the past. Yeah. And she's got to go back and say, Hmm, who was this man? And it's so exactly. much fun because- we know what it's like if this big best-selling author is going to be coming and making this big statement, what kind of happening in the room. And let's talk about the lambs, which is the ladies auxiliary mystery book society. <laughs> who are, it's so great. The fandom is just not to be, you know, like untold un of what they will do for JD, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm having a little fun and I'm poking a little fun at myself and us crazy book people, Carol. Exactly. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you're the first person to actually mention them. I expected everybody to mention the lambs, but they are those fanatical readers who bless their hearts. I am most grateful for those readers because uh, they come out to events, you know, they buy multiple copies, they proselytize for, for writers in ways that you, you can only be intensely grateful for. And so, you know, I'm, I've included them as an ode to all of those people out there who, who really are wonderful fans of books yeah. and are in a way a little bit antiquated like I am because <laughs> we're still really interested in books, not yeah. so much everything else. Yeah. We're really interested in seeing what the author is about. Like that's the reason we loved, we came up with the concept of doing these interviews because a lot of people still know you only by what you present on a website and words. And yes. to be able to have an interview and have the author talk about the background of the book and for people who are never going to get to a book event because an author is not going to all 50 states. They're not going to whatever. I mean, the event we did the other night with our reviewers, we had 31 states represented plus Canada and the, um, DC. And that's like really big because you realize you were able to get into a lot of people's homes that may not know about those books or have heard about them differently from our reviewers instead of just reading the words on the page. So no, I really love the idea of the lambs out there, the lamb society, there they go. <laughs> so now we move like from the action from the hotel to the mansion, the mansion, JD's mansion. With a storyline in the past, it gives you a big runway. It gives a really big runway to get to know Molly and know what's going on. So that did that runway come to you right away? Or you knew you had to give more to her, but was it, okay, she's going to be 10, she's going to do this, that, or did that happen along the way too? You know, I, I knew that I had to discover like a new terrain as a writer. And if the first book, if The Maid was a mystery on the front end, but it combined and Frankenstein, as I like to say, two sort of genres together, the secondary genre was feel good fiction or uplit, as mm -hmm. the Brits call it, uplifting literature. And, um, you know, for me as a creator, it was so much fun to see, can I actually build a mystery, a murder mystery, and make it filled with heart and have it uplifting at the same time. That was for me exciting to see mm -hmm. if I could put those two things together. So when I turned to the mystery guest, it was like, okay, well, what am I gonna do now? Like I knew of course the main genre is gonna be mystery, but I also knew that in order to satisfy myself and my creative um, yen, I had to find another genre. 
And I love books that take place in a creepy old house, that <laughs> whole notion of the secrets of a house mm -hmm. and how that can be a metaphor for the secrets of the psyche or secrets of a character. And so I sort of put those two things together. And I was also inspired by another weird cosmic moment, one of the ones that I call the gifts of the gods that descend upon writers every once in a while. And, you know, in with Maid, it was actually running into a maid in my hotel room that inspired me to think about how intimate and invisible that job is. But in this book, I was on tour for the maid and I was in the UK and I went to this castle museum just outside of Brighton and I came across the weirdest display in this museum. OK, so I there's a display case and I look into it and inside are two things the mummified body of a rat <laughs> and a single silver spoon. And I look at this, I'm like, what is this doing in this castle? Yeah. And then there's a little description underneath it. And it says, and it explains that in the 17th century, and this is true, there was a maid, a servant girl who worked in this castle and she was unceremoniously dismissed after having been accused of stealing a piece of silverware. Mm -hmm. And that's it. She was frog marched out the door. And then years later, when they were renovating the castle, they opened up the walls and lo and behold, they found a rat's nest. Oh. And inside it, that mummified rat. Oh. And beside that, that single silver spoon, which she'd been accused of stealing. And for me, suddenly this funny little moment, this true to life moment just inspired me. You know, it was a parable and a cautionary tale. I could almost hear Grand's little aphorisms. You know, be careful what you assume. Nothing is ever as it seems. The past will never stay buried forever. And right. somehow with that sort of new idea of a fairy tale for adults, that sort of unleashed the rest of the story. Oh, I love it. I love it because you can see where you went from there to see where, yes. yes. Okay. Now how am I going to drive this along? You know, so um, Molly is at the mansion because she has been um, sort of kicked out of school. They, she has been, you know, she's not your typical child in school. She's been a little bit of a trouble to everyone and they really don't know what to do with her. So Grant says, I'm going to take her along. And she's got this really great line. It's something to the fact that children should not be in charge of Molly's emotional education. And I really love that line. Hmm. From there, Molly thinks about what she learned from children and they were all unkind things. They were not wonderful things. And there's a lot to unpack there about things about children who are different and their slights from these very young ages. I mean, I think every one of us can remember a slight from when we were young, but imagine that being packed on day after day. Exactly. And you see, I think that line from Graham was so good that children should not be in charge of her emotional education. What a line. What well, line. you know, I think, um, you know, morality is learned. It's learned behavior. And when you have a small plastic brain, when you're a child, your brain isn't developed enough to have high levels of empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. That is something that has to be cultivated, um, you know, in youth, never mind in adults. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think that um, Molly, like so many people, has a really unfortunate time in school because of her differences. And when the bullying isn't kept in check, uh, she really gets victimized, despite the fact that she's a brilliant student. That mm -hmm. doesn't quite seem to matter. And I and, you know, I, do, I don't think this is uncommon. It's certainly mm -hmm. something I saw when I was a teacher. 
Yeah. It's like you really have to spend time with children like that. And sometimes there's just not the time to give them the direction of that's not really what they mean. This is what they're really saying. You know, yes. all these kinds of things. Yes. I also love when they get to the Grimthorpe house that she feels, Mrs. Grimthorpe says, that we are there at the house to support her husband. That by being close to his artistic genius and by serving him, they are serving creativity itself. Now, <laughs> line is great. Ain't she one, something? <laughs> have you tried that line at home? I just said, <laughs> just want you to know, by doing the laundry, you are right. serving, you are serving creativity. creativity. Yeah, I don't think that that would go over so well in my household, Carol. <laughs> I don't, somehow don't think uh, my partner would be so appreciative of that. Um, yeah, line note. You can try it. <laughs> I, I'll give it a try. Uh, yeah, Mrs. Grimthorpe is is of a type, and she's certainly of a generation. Incredibly protective of uh, the genius of her husband. Um, but in the end, we start to see where that actually comes from and why she's so protective. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think she's one of these women who has made some very desperate and difficult choices in her life. Mm -hmm. um that she then of course has to live with in in some dramatic and difficult ways yeah yeah as, as you know as time goes on it's like what do you know what do you not know yeah. and there's one point when they first pull up to their house and grand hands the taxi driver money and she tells him to keep the change and there's a really good like moment there because i feel that those who are in service to others are those who think most about taking care of others in service and was this like a nod to that? Because I felt like when she just said, keep the change and they're not wealthy at all. I mean, no, she can't even afford a taxi ride, but she has no choice in this particular instance. Yes, it is a nod to that. Um, I think so many things in, in this book and the other book are about building empathy through an experience. And I try to really seat the reader in Molly's experience behind her eyes, in her skin, mm -hmm. so that you can slowly come to love this person who is at times maybe a little bit frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, but but that cultivation of, of empathy is like a key sort of value in the book, I think. Mm -hmm. And that is a moment where Gran, who is a pretty evolved human being in a lot of ways, shows and demonstrates to Molly and to the world, really, how, what generosity and kindness really looks like. Yeah, what it's supposed to be and what's it's going to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's also a line and um, tell a lie and your truth becomes questionable. And that's such a great line. Tell a lie and all your truth becomes questionable is really what happens because we get caught in a lie. Everybody sort of wonders, well, what else was really true and what was not? And is there a genesis for that as well in the book? You know, I, I don't know. I think I made that up. <laughs> good one, though. I don't think I got that one from anywhere. Some of uh, some of Grand's sayings, uh, you know, they're they're tried and true ones that you know maybe some other mother or grandmother in your life might have said to you at some point. But I think that one was a Grandism I I made up from scratch, um, and it's about authenticity and something that I think that those two characters share, Grand and Molly is they are 100% authentic to themselves. Mm -hmm. And that means that sometimes in the amoral, difficult universe that they find themselves, they stand out, they're different. It's hard, it's hard to be truthful. It's hard to be authentic. And uh, they, you know, they butt up against that in many different ways in this book. Wow. And it's like, yeah, this is just like, okay, this is who we're gonna be. 
and accept it, but you know, we're not lying about what goes on. I did love the nearby pawn shop with what appeared to be purloined goods. Now the <laughs> values of Grim Grimthorpe's books immediately went up in value. Now, does the world of book collectors in interest you? Like, do you collect books? Do you collect books with signatures? Because I collect books, but not signed books. I, don't, I do don't either. And for some reason, I mean, I've worked, as you know, for years as an editor. And something I never did was have my authors sign books that I worked on. I felt that that was like so strange. It was almost too personal a thing to ask of yes. them. Yeah. So I do not have a collection, but I do know many people in publishing who have vast collection of signed editions. And I also do love that um, Grimthorpe has a lot of his own secrets. I mean, oh my gosh, this man is hiding a lot. We're not yep. going to share it here. We describe it so well. And it gives you so much insight into what may have happened. And I just thought the way that was all like a layered in there was particularly fun because you really don't know what's going on. There's so many possible people that may have murdered him, including his wife, that they're possible, like, you know, who could have done this? And then you go from there of what happened. Well, I mean, that is the fun thing about the engine of a mystery is that your goal as a writer is to create a cast of, you know, tremendous suspects and everybody has to look guilty at some point. Um, and that is part of the fun of that creation is that there's there are many, 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 many suspects. Everybody wants to kill this man. And the thing about this book is we don't care when he's dead. Right, right. We're like, yeah, that's probably a really good thing. <laughs> but we do care about the why. And in some ways, it's a why done it. Why would someone when so many people had motive to kill right. this man or to dislike him? You know, who? And how did did uh, the universe conspire to be rid of him? Yeah, and the lambs are running around doing like you know their sympathy call because they're they're let's say they're booked there for a couple of days, so they're not leaving. They're like in a state for, and they're trying to detective their own way through the whole thing of like and this is what's going on. Yes, of course, you know Molly has the clue. Molly's got the clue of what's going on, and it's such a fun clue. I'm not giving anything away. So by the end of the book, though, we've also got Molly has learned a lot about her family. And I love the way you were able to do that because there were there were moments where something happens and then something happens and you're sort of putting it all together. But by the end, we have a very different view of her because we see her as more complete than just she and Graham the way we saw it before. And when you were going into this, were you saying I've got to reveal more of Molly or was it? As I was writing, you know what, let me tell her backstory a little bit more. Uh, I knew that there was more to mine in the backstory. And I think um, the difference between the two books is that in the first book, she, as a character, goes through this seismic journey of growth to understand who she is. You know, and that happens in a compressed timeline of about a week in, in the mm -hmm. maid. But, you know... What was I going to do with the next book? Since now she knows herself, she's she's got a good handle mm -hmm. on who she is by the end of that book. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the second book, um, I did what we do in life when we have, uh, you know, more wisdom about who we are. Then we grow interest in other people, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what's happening in the second book. It's not her journey of growth anymore. It's really about her understanding her grand mm -hmm. and the sacrifices the huge sacrifices her grand made in order for her to thrive, survive, um, and have a life that would be better than grand's. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's what she's doing when she goes back into those memories, which reveal themselves in present tense. She's really trying to understand who Gran was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that that's the way it is for us, too. When we can mature and accept who we are, see ourselves a little bit more fully, we're less introspective and we're more curious um, and more empathetic to those around us. Mm-hmm. And there comes a certain age where that ends up happening. I always yeah. joke that by your forties, you know, you don't always have the best boyfriend, the best, this, the best, that, which was, that was important before that was all yeah. important now. And now you want to sit there and say, I have a great life and right. it's got these imperfections, but it's still my life. And I wouldn't change it with anybody else. Yeah. And cause you have time to look around you and say, I don't want that, but I want that, but it doesn't go like that. I always yep. have this joke that with soup, you get egg roll. Like, you know, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> that's the whole thing right learn to love it learn to love it learn to love it so how much like was serious plotting done in advance because you knew what you had to do with your character but then you've got to put the plot up against it as well I remember when I saw you in April I don't know whether you're finished at that point or whatever we were out in East Hampton and we were on that panel and I remember it was you it was AJ Finn it was um oh gosh I'm trying to remember who else was on with us um Greer Liz Nugent's. No, I think I think, it was, I think it was the one with Greer where we were talking oh, right. about being an editor and also yes. you know, moving to the other side. Yes. And the three of you were all sitting there going, huh, yeah, that's a real fun time about writing the book. And it was really <laughs> funny because you all had these looks on your faces. You go, oh yeah, it's like really great right now. And at that point, you could be up against obstacles or you could not have completely refined where your storyline is going to be. You seem to know where you're going to go, what you wanted to do with Molly. But to get her there, was that the bigger stumbling block on this one? That's Um, always the bigger stumbling block. You know, you can have a character and understand who they are, but how you reveal that takes craft. You know, that takes, um, you know, uh, to take the reader on a narrative journey like that, that entertains and uh, compels and keeps you turning pages and interested in the character and in the mystery. Well, it's a lot to balance all at the same time. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying for any writer. So when you saw all of these writers on that panel, that's because we are abjectly terrified that we can't do it. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, now I've done two books. I counted, I still count myself as a newbie in this industry as a writer. I mean, I've edited and I when I edit, I feel like a god. I feel like I know everything. I know how to do this. But as a writer, I feel brand new. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I know and it is challenging every time and when I talk to other writers and you know I'm like please tell me this gets easier like tell me <laughs> after book two I'm gonna feel like I know what I'm doing and then they break the the bad news to me Carol no. they never no no they either feel they're not gonna have an idea they're not gonna be able to execute it they start working on it they think they're writing themselves into a wall then it starts to get better. Then it gets worse because something goes wrong on the plotting or the narrative or just something that's going on. And I think that people don't realize it's people think that you sit at your, you know, down at your computer and go, let's have fun today writing the book. Yeah, and it's, as if. Yeah, it's not, it's not. It's more like, okay, now I've got this. And you know, at the same time, you were balancing a very big job. You had a very yes. big job. And at the same time, you're working with those authors. You're working on all the business parts that people don't really think about a lot with publishing. I'd love to do a panel sometime where people talk about the business of publishing and what you have to worry about. 
and yeah. do another one about covers and who does the cover designs and get our readers like, you know, sort of behind the scenes because the business is um, if so-and-so turns their algorithm about how they're buying, your whole thing goes up in the air. If so-and-so says we're not taking any books here, it all yeah. goes up in the air. Yeah. And am I right about like you're trying no, to balance? That's absolutely things? true. You're you're trying to balance all of those things, or sometimes you're trying to forget that entirely because it can be so invasive that it actually cuts off your creativity. Right. You know, it's that yin and yang of you want to be writing into a trend. But if you do, well, then you're going to have lots of competition. So maybe the best thing to do is just write the best book you can. Right. You know? Right. And as you're and as you're doing this, you've done so much to set her up as a character differently than we knew her before. Like she's more empowered now, yes. but she's still questioning. She's questioning her past. She's questioning, like, how did I get to this point? And there are a lot of answers here as well. So you got some ideas as you're going in. It's not completely plotted. Did you know how it was going to end? This I know. And, I, you know, in that plotter or pantser, like, oh, do you fly by the seat of your pants or do you actually plot every single thing? I'm sort of a medium. Mm -hmm. I'm like in between both of those things. I do know the big twists and the turns before I start and I find those very motivating. Mm -hmm. So I'll often be able to write a scene near the end of the book because I see it so vividly. And certainly that was true in The Mystery Guest. There is a scene that happens in the parlor of the Grimthorpe Mansion near the end. Right. Um, that was pivotal. And I knew what was ha going to happen there. Right. No spoilers, no spoilers. Um, and I could have written it, you know, uh, on the first month that I was trying out the book, but mm -hmm. I held it and held it and held it because it was going to be my reward for getting through all of the slog of not knowing much else about mm -hmm. how I was going to get there. Right. You know, so there's, there is a, there's a mystery about writing mysteries for me mm -hmm. that, that not knowing and with a few stepping stones of knowing is like the perfect recipe for me to be able to find, you know, the narrative. Yeah. Sit there and say, okay, I've got where I'm going to go over here, but there's a whole thing to get to yep. that reward, but knowing the reward at the end will make it, you know, completely different. It's like, knowing at least you're going to get to some place, but getting there. And a lot of people told me recently, they know the very end. They know the last line. They know this, but the whole, they said, the, we got the first paragraph at the end. And then there's a whole part in the middle that you've got to sit there and. Exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by writers who know very, very little and just sit in front of their computers and invent every day. And Lisa Jewell is one of those. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think it was when we were at yes. that same Hamptons festival where she was talking about how she writes. And she's like, I write and write and write. And then when I get bored, I make something happen. <laughs> I was like, like, yes, but that's because she has so much experience as a writer. Right. She doesn't need to know anything in advance, which I really find interesting. I also find she's interesting because she said she'll see something and that'll be the idea for the book. Like she sees a man who's kind of homeless among all these women and thinks, oh, what is he doing there? Why is he here? And that's the reason right. for the book. Remember right. one of their book, it's like, you know, like dig here. I said, did you see that on the ground someplace? She says, no, Carol, that wasn't the clue that time. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I nailed it, you know? But she was so funny because she said, yeah, you'll just get something. And then, but she still says, there's times she's at the computer and she says, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing. I don't know where I'm going to go. But you get that little, like you see the man with the women and. Yep. Yeah. Or you go to a museum and you see, a, you know, this display case. I mean, it's very strange 
what serves as inspiration for a writer. They're often odd little encounters mm -hmm. or something that sticks out. Mm -hmm. And somehow your writer's brain can't leave it alone. Mm -hmm. You got to pick at the scab. Yeah. Um, and those, those are the moments, the, the thing that doesn't blend, the thing that sticks out, the thing that is odd. And somehow uh, that spawns creativity. Yeah, that spawns the inspiration. Yeah. That spawns like where you're going to go from there. Yeah, and you can see that because you love the character. If you understand the character enough, you're going to say, well, what, what would she come up against? How would she go exactly. in this situation? Like that moment in the taxi, what would Grand do? She would overtip. And there were just those little things I was picking up because last night I was going back through the book, you know, preparing for the interview. And I was like, wait a second, there are all these little moments in there that, you know, just completely make sense. So you are touring with this book, which is something you did not do with the last book. And I completely forgot, like, how did those last couple of years blur over to me? So what has the reaction been like for readers as you're out on the road? What are you seeing from people? It is the most wonderful thing to meet my readers. You know, it was uh, the first time around I was, as I am right now, in my basement. <laughs> you know, fortunately, I'm wearing proper pants, not, uh, you know, pajamas this time. Impressive, right? Oh, yeah. But uh, two years ago, I was probably in pajama pants, like everybody else. Um, so actually going out and meeting readers this time around has been so wonderful. I, I, uh, there's something about these readers you know, mm -hmm. I feel like I know them and I am buoyed by the fact that they feel they know me through the vehicle of this book. Mm -hmm. You know, I have never considered myself the kind of writer who writes on high and delivers this oeuvre to my readers who will opine as they wish about it. I, I just don't feel that way. Yeah. I feel like I'm a writer who is a co-creator and my reader finishes the experience. I start... Mm -hmm. I put down what I have on the page, I give it to a reader and the reader completes it. Mm -hmm. And I and I work with that. I really try to give um, you know, minimal details, as little as I can possibly get away with in the shape of a hotel, of a of character background, how how the characters look. I just sketch the absolute minimum because I expect the reader to fill in the rest. I mm -hmm. want you to participate. I want you to co-create. I want you to bring in your knowledge of hotels, of maids, of cities, of pawn shops, mm -hmm. and fill in all the blanks that I left mm -hmm. so that you and I, you, my reader, and I create together. We we do something together. So meeting them in person, Carol, <laughs> is so meaningful because I get to hear about their creation. I get to hear from the other side, you know? Um, and that has been utterly delightful to hear their responses to Molly, to hear how they protect her, how they care for her, mm -hmm. um, you know, where they think the hotel is, what city <laughs> they saw in their mind. All of this for me is just the most utterly enchanting um, gift back to me as as the writer of these books. It's like the gold that's coming back because it's, it is. it's not just about the money getting paid. It's about the emotional satisfaction that the reader has connected with what you're writing about. And a lot of people do that. And But when you've got something like what you wrote, and then you get to read the second book, and it's just as good. There's sometimes where the second book veers in a different direction, and you've been there on the other side of that as an editor. The book's not completely delivering. We've read them from readers, not completely delivering. But when it does, you're just sitting there going, whoa, that was a good experience. And then you're saying 
what's next? Like that's immediately the, the conversation. What's next? We'll get to what's next, but before we get to what's next, let's talk a little bit this. Was the title always the mystery guest? Was it always that? It was not. That's a very good question. So when I first um, finished the manuscript, it was called The Maid, The Rat, and The Spoon. So, you know, even given what I've said already, you can see where you know, some of the fundamental uh, metaphors in the book were right. were in that title. And it was felt by the publishers that having rat in the title, that was gross. <laughs> they were very worried about the rat. <laughs> was it the book of poetry that was the mole, the boy and the fox or something? Yeah, the boy, the fox and the mole and something else maybe. But I was the horse, the horse. If you yeah. said that, that's what I would have been thinking of. That's immediately right. where my mind would go was to that book. Immediately. Right. right. So this is like, oh, I'm seeing the guest. I'm seeing, you know, what's happening with the guest. You're yeah. seeing a key in a keyhole, you know? I think, you know, I love the title. It is not my title. It's the brilliant Charlotte Brabin's title in the UK. She came up with it. And the second she did, I'm like, ka-ching, there it is. <laughs> and, you know, we there's so many ways you can interpret the title. Once you've read the book, um, you will ask the question, who is the mystery guest? It mm -hmm. could be many people. Mm -hmm. The, the book is great for discussion as a result for all the reasons that you're stating. We're giving absolutely nothing away. But if you sit down and have a book group discussion about this, it's going to be so much to play into and so many different themes to like, you know, take a look at. So the cover was this, I mean, it, it, it matches mirrors. It feels like it works with the maid. It's, you know, it's, it's yeah. definitely my lights are in the middle of it. Yeah, exactly. There we so go. They're companions to each other. Yeah, for so sure. Very different books. So very different books. For sure. And I love what they've done with these covers. They're yeah. elegant. They're simple. I love covers, especially for thrillers and mystery that have, um, you know, a sense of the genre, something hidden and something shown. So we know that there's, there's a body behind there. Yeah. There's a body that's attached to that hand. And what is she doing? So we see a little key. We know something is dangling, but we don't know what else is going on. And I love that. And yeah. I love that on the first design too. Yeah. And we don't know where the key is going to take us. We don't know exactly. where the key is going to go. Who owns the key? Really? Whose hand is that really on the key? We have no idea. You know, the audio has Lauren Ambrose as its narrator. Again, she did the maid as well. What do you like about her narration? What works for you? And is she from the UK or US? Which one? I'm not sure. She's US and I love everything about her voicing these two books. I was so glad when she said yes to doing the second. And Carol, I remember the first time I was sent um, tapes uh, of auditions for The Maid. And, you know, I'm listening to one, listening to the next, listening to the next. And then there's this voice and it's hers. <gasps> and I got chills. I just chills, chills, chills because she sounded like Molly. There's a crack in her voice. It's, it's, it's so precise and defined. And then it just, there's something in it that you know she's different, that she's extraordinary. And I think she nails that. Um, and I think it's uh, it's one of the reasons why the, the audiobook has been so compelling for some listeners. Yeah. And if, when her. people find the right narrator, the right person doing a narration, and they fall in love with, oh, she's going to do this one again, then I'm going to pick up the audio. I'm going to do that, which I think becomes really, really important. Yeah. So what is next for you? What is next? Well, Carol, <laughs> um, you know, I think... I'm exploring the possibility of a Molly book three. Right. Um, but, you know, just as I told you earlier, I'll only, you'll only ever see it 
if I feel like I can offer more instead of less, but mm. I'm working on something now. And for me, the key to that is always about genre mystery on the front. What's on the back. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm exploring that now and I hope, uh, I hope to get somewhere. I got a lot of writing ahead of me, <laughs> but long runway going ahead of you. Long it's runway. a long runway, but, um, I'm hopeful that, that perhaps we'll see another, um, another Molly book to close well, out the series. It was interesting because her boyfriend was not a big part of this book. He came right. in at the end. He was exactly. away for a lot and him being away gave her an opportunity to not have to be home at a certain time at night. She could go explore. She could go do this. And also when somebody's not around, you think a lot more because you don't have somebody to be talking to. So I yes. think that was a very interesting part of this book is she wasn't going home and say, we're going to make dinner. We're going to have conversation. How was your job today? What did you do? And he'd gone home to visit his family. So there would have been a lot more, if he came back too soon, there would have been have to be too much about that. And that's exactly. not where the book was supposed to go. I think you're absolutely right. And that was one of the challenges that I had to think about narratively. It's right. like, if she has too much support in this book, then she cannot grow. Right. She grows in the first book because Grant is no longer there, sadly, very sadly, but she has to navigate the world on her own. And so he was a little, poor Juan was a little bit more displaced in book two, but I assure you, he'll be back in book three. Juan's got a home. Juan's he's, got a home. He's someplace. got a lot more to do in book three. Yeah. Because remember, she has not yet met his family. No, there's she has whole, not. There's a whole lot to do. There's a whole lot with the family going on as well. There's, there's a whole lot going on there. Yep. Also, look, it's exciting. I think that, you know, when you read something that's so fulfilling twice, and when you can't wait to get to the next page, but you also did something. And when we talked last week or whatever, I think it was last week, when we talked, we, you, I brought up something. There are a lot of times that there is a thriller or a mystery and you start reading it. And if you put it down, you are completely lost when you pick it back up. Yeah. And I have this happen. And especially going into the holidays, I was going into Thanksgiving is reading this, you know, and, and as you're doing that, you're putting down and picking up. And what I found was I was able to put down and pick up and not be lost. And that is a very, very big thing for a writer to have delivered because character is strong enough, um, sense of place is strong enough, and plotting is strong enough. And a lot of books these days, and I want readers who are listening to this to think about it, is how many times do you put it down and you pick up and you're like, I don't know where I am on this page. Like, I have to go right. back three pages to even figure out where we are and what we're doing. Yes. So I think that's a huge testimony that you would well, an accomplishment for you as a writer to have been able to do that because I wasn't going all the time who is this person and why remember who were they you know because a lot of times it is that way it's not that they're written enough or they're plotted the plot for them reason for them to be there isn't enough for me well that is that is a huge compliment and it's uh it's a very hard thing to know how many characters is enough mm -hmm. and are are they real enough for the the audience to remember them Right. You know, do they stay relevant and important enough in the reader's mind that they hold space there so you can walk away from the book and bring them back? Um, and, you know, there I have to credit my authors that I've worked with for years and years for teaching me the craft of how to do that. Right. Right. So now you're leaving a career where you've been doing that for years and years. Was that a really huge decision to sit there and say, <laughs> I'm going to leave something that I've loved doing for so long and love the authors that I'm working with? Uh, absolutely brutal. So I'm working until the end of the year at SNS and then that's it. Um, I love editing. 
You know, I love immersing myself in other people's stories and finding ways to help them with their narrative problems. Mm -hmm. So it has been a very big deal for me to walk away. But, you know, I felt really divided and I need more time to write. Yeah. And you can't, you can't do it, especially look, when you wrote the first one, we were in lockdown, it was a totally different thing. And now the world has changed again. They're in-person meetings with authors. They're in-person going places, being places, doing things. And it's, it's a huge, like, where's my disconnect? And what am I not going to be able, if I really want to work on the book right now, and I've got that deadline, but an author's late on their manuscript coming in, I'm in a real debacle. And that's That's something I realized. Because that's right. I think that people don't realize also that everything doesn't go smoothly along the way. It's not <laughs> no. like in publishing, it most often goes unsmoothly <laughs> sideways. Everything yeah. goes kind of sideways. Like we're going to do this and then we're going to do that. And then we're going to move this. And yeah. And I think that it's not like, you know, just getting up in a single day and saying, this is the way it's going to happen. No, not really. You know, no, no, no. It's, that's half the fun of it. But it, uh, is. it is, but it's also more difficult these days. I feel like, you know what I mean? I feel like that's yeah. like, you know, something that's really happening as well. Well, I thank you so much for joining us as always. It's so much fun. And I'm looking forward to the next conversation about whatever the book goes, wherever it goes. Me well, too. And I always love chatting with you, Carol. So thank you. Thanks well, I'm glad I brought up the lambs. I always like to bring up something that nobody else brought up. You I've always done, do. In the last two interviews, and they sat there and they're like, I see, really? Nobody brought the sheep up? Like, really? You know, nobody brought this up? So I like when I'm surprised too. It's always good. <laughs> That's excellent. We will catch up really soon. Readers, you're in for a real delight. You want to do this. You want to pick this up over the holidays. We have time to sit back and read or whenever. And if you want to have a book club discussion, this is a really good one. You'll have a lot of fun. Nita, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Carol. To everybody else, we'll see you next time on Book Reporter Talks To. Keep listening for an audio excerpt from The Mystery Guest by Nita Prose, narrated by Warren Ambrose, coming up after the credits, courtesy of Random House Audio. Thank you for listening to Book Reporter Talks To. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Support us by sharing on social media or by telling a friend about us. And we look forward to next time on Book Reporter Talks To. The show has been produced by Jordan Red Productions. And now, hear an audiobook excerpt from The Mystery Guest, narrated by Warren Ambrose, courtesy of Random House Audio. I am standing in Mr. Snow's office, holding a fresh cup of tea. My hands are unsteady. My heart is racing. The floor under my feet tilts like I'm in a funhouse, which I most definitely am not. The tea is not for me. It's for Lily Finch, who I hired three weeks ago. Lily, who is petite and quiet, with jet-black shoulder-length hair and skittish eyes, and who at the moment trembles in Mr. Snow's maroon leather office chair, tears streaming down her face. It takes me back, truly it does, to a time when I sat all by myself in the chair Lily sits in now, trembling as I waited for others to decide my fate. It happened approximately four years ago. I was cleaning a penthouse suite on the fourth floor when I stumbled across a guest who I thought was sleeping deeply, but even the deepest sleepers do not give up breathing entirely. A quick check of Mr. Black's pulse revealed that he was in fact dead, very dead, in his hotel room bed. And while from that moment on I did my utmost to deal with this most unusual situation, all fingers suddenly pointed at me as the murderess. 
many in my midst, including the police and an alarming number of my co-workers, assumed that I had murdered Mr. Black. I am a cleaner, not a killer. I did not murder Mr. Black, in cold blood, or lukewarm for that matter. I was wrongly accused, but with the help of some very good eggs, I was exonerated. Still, the experience most certainly took its toll. It underscored just how hazardous a maid's work can be. It's not the back-breaking labor, the demanding guests, or the cleaning chemicals that present the greatest danger. It's the assumption that maids are delinquents, murderers, and thieves. The maid is always to blame. I truly thought Mr. Black's demise was the beginning of the end for me, but everything turned out just fine, as Gran always predicted it would. Now, in Mr. Snow's office, I lock eyes with Lily, and when I do, I feel her fear like an electric current traveling straight into my heart. Who could blame her for being afraid? Not me. Who on earth actually thinks they'll show up for work one day to host a world-famous author, only to have him die in a room filled to capacity with adoring fans and shutter-clicking press? And what poor, hapless maid could ever imagine she'd not only serve the writer upon the moment of his death, but also serve as his deathbed? Poor Lily. Poor, poor girl. You are not alone. You will always have me. Gran's words echo in my head as they always do. If only Lily could hear them. A good cup of tea will cure all ills, I say passing Lily the cup I'm cradling in my hands. She takes it, but she does not speak. This is not unusual for Lily. She has trouble using her words, but lately she's been much better at expressing herself, at least with me. She's come so far since her job interview, executed by me and Mr. Snow. It went so poorly that Mr. Snow's eyes grew two sizes behind his tortoiseshell glasses when I announced, Lily Finch is our strongest candidate for the job. But she barely spoke through the entire interview, Mr. Snow said. She couldn't come up with an answer when I asked her to outline her best qualities. Molly, why in the world would you choose her? May I remind you, Mr. Snow, I said, that overweening confidence is not the primary quality to consider when hiring a maid. You may recall that a certain former hotel employee had confidence in spades, but turned out to be a very bad egg indeed. Do you not remember? Mr. Snow nodded oh so subtly. But the good news is, I can read him much better now than I could when I first started as a maid at the Regency Grand Hotel seven and a half years ago. This little nod suggested willingness to defer the final decision about Lily to me. Miss Finch is most definitely quiet, I said. But since when has loquaciousness been a key skill for a maid? Loose lips sink ships. Isn't that what you always say, Mr. Snow? Lily needs training, which I intend to provide, but I can tell she's a worker bee. She has everything it takes to become a valued member of the hive. Very well, Molly, Mr. Snow said, though his pursed mouth suggested he was not entirely convinced. In the few weeks that I've been training Lily, she's made tremendous progress as a maid. Just the other day, when we encountered our lovely repeat guests, Mr. and Mrs. Chen, outside their penthouse suite, Lily actually spoke. She used her words in the presence of guests for the very first time.